This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. Well, are you ready to study God's Word together this morning? If you would, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, if you were with us last Sunday, you will recognize that we... Last week's sermon was Being Steady in a World of Dysfunctional Politics, Part 1. And so in um, numerics, it would make sense that today's sermon would be Steady in a Dysfunctional World, Part 2. And so that is what we're going to do today. And if you remember last week, we set the stage of The current political state and environment in America can be really just described as one of dysfunction. Now, depending on your age, your generation, you probably approach this season a little bit differently. For those of us who have a little bit more gray hair in our heads and who have been around for a few more election cycles, you and I know that what we are currently experiencing, although it may not be completely cataclysmic, it is a little bit out of the ordinary. That we look at the way in which our politicians and our leaders have communicated towards one another, talked about one another, and engaged or not engaged with one another over the last 10 to 20 years, it is very different from what would be normal over the last century or so. So we've seen a seismic shift in the way in which Washington works, the way in which our state houses work. If you are younger in our congregation, which is a lot of you, this dysfunction is pretty much all you have ever known. And so it could be very tempting for you to simply check out and just simply say it's not worth it. Politics stinks. You might even use a different choice word, but I won't in this morning's sermon. But it just stinks. And I want no part of it. Just leave me out of it. There's just complete apathy. But this morning, what I want to encourage us to think about is that as dysfunctional as politics is, politics still serves a good purpose. And government still has a God-ordained role. And that even as being citizens of two worlds, we should not hold to it too tightly, but it does not honor God either to just simply throw it in the trash heap and say, I'm a citizen of another world, so this has no bearing on me whatsoever. What I would argue to you is that in our current state, in our current situation in which we're living, if our dysfunctional world, if our dysfunctional political world is a tumultuous sea where stormy waters are awry, followers of Jesus Christ are to be a lighthouse firmly anchored in the gospel of Christ, shining a light into this world pointing towards the next world to give our fellow brothers and sisters, our fellow neighbors, a hope and and a kingdom to which is to come so that we don't rest too tightly in this one. I want us to think missiologically about our politics so that we might be good missionaries speaking the gospel into our current state. Now, last week, if you remember... I lay down this predicate, these two foundational challenges, that at the intersection of faith and politics, we need to remember our ultimate tribe, which is the tribe of Jesus Christ, and we need to remember our ultimate calling. 
And that that ultimate calling in the midst of this dysfunctional politics is to abstain, display, and proclaim. Or abstain, proclaim, and display. Whichever order you want to put them in. That we are to abstain from the practices of the world. That we are to proclaim the excellencies of the gospel. And we are to display a living embodiment of the gospel. And that comes into full play in the, wit, in the way in which we engage politically. Now this morning what I want to do is I want to pick back up in 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to go to the next paragraph that Peter writes here. And I'm going to give a little bit more practical working out of this this morning in today's sermon. So this morning, if you would pull out your listening guides from your worship guides or download it from the description in today's live stream, be ready to take notes. But I also want to point your attention to those of you who are here in uh, person with us this morning. Also in your worship guides today is a, an index card. And that index card is for you to write a question or two that you might have in response to not only today's sermon but perhaps the last few weeks' sermons. Because next Sunday, for the message time, I'm going to be answering your questions. I know that there have got to be any number of questions. Okay, Chris, you said this, but what does that exactly mean here? Or how in the world do I put this into practice in this arena in my life? Or I have this relationship that's very important to me, and it's very hard to navigate these waters with them. Any recommendations you may have? I want you to write your questions down. And as you're leaving today, you can drop them in the basket on your way out at the welcome table. And you're going to help dictate where I go in next week's message time. I'm going to already warn you, I won't be able to answer every single question. But we're going to try and answer as many as we can to put into practice what we've learned from God's word and being steady. Particularly as it pertains to the uncertainty and the social unrest surrounding this year's election. But 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's go there together. We're going to pick up in verse 13. And we're going to go through verse 17 this morning. Verse 13 says this. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. To punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. There are many mistakes that we as Christians can make in the 21st century democratic republic like the United States of America. And one of those mistakes that we might make as we approach the Bible to allow the Bible to dictate and tell us whom we should vote for on Tuesday, November 3rd. And I believe that that would be a mistake if we are narrowly looking for that sort of direction. The Bible simply doesn't tell us how to vote or whom to vote for because the first century Christian church would not have known a democratic republic like the United States of America where we choose our own leaders. And so what we do is we look for gospel principles to guide us. But as I said multiple times last week, I'm going to say it a couple of times today. I want to remind you that what the New Testament scriptures are passionate about 
is to help us understand as Christians, yes, there's an appropriate level that Christians can participate in the political realm, but more importantly, there's a particular type of people God desires Christians to be when we engage politically. And to that end, I'm going to keep talking towards that end today as I'm going to show you four countercultural practices at the intersection of faith and politics. So here are some practices that are very countercultural for us in the 21st century in the West, but here they are at the intersection of faith and politics. And here's what we learned from the text this morning. Number one, we ultimately hope in God, not politics. We ultimately hope in God, not politics. As Christ followers, as people who cherish the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's where I want you to see this in this passage. Throughout this short paragraph, we see several references to God. Everything Peter challenged his readers with, it's not to point our affections or ultimate allegiance to an earthly king, or in our case, a president. Instead, Peter wants to point our allegiances to God and the ultimate reign of his son, Jesus Christ. Every verse in this short paragraph mentions God in some way or another as the one to whom we are ultimately responsible and the one in whom we ultimately hope. Just go down with me. Verse 13 tells us to be subject to every human institution for the Lord's sake. Verse 14 says that earthly governments are sent by Him, by God. Verse 15 tells us that our obedient submission to the governing authorities is the will of God. Verse 16 challenges us to rethink our earthly citizenship so that we ultimately live as not just citizens of America, but also ultimately as servants of God. And in verse 17, rather than fearing any emperor or fearing any president, we should fear God, Peter says. Now, since our ultimate allegiance is to God, and since our ultimate hope is in the Lord and not in politics, that truth should affect the way we frame our expectations of the government and the way we frame our expectations of elections, whether they're local elections or whether they are national elections. Now, biblically speaking, there are God-ordained roles for government to play in human beings' lives and in society at large. And in in verse 14 specifically, Peter gives us a glimpse of that role. He simply says that these leaders are sent by God to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. We don't have time to unpack all of this, but when you look at the New Testament, there is very little expectations or direction from God towards government and their and their uh, role on earth. It's very limited. Now, that doesn't mean that there 
are no other purposes that government can have on earth outside of those because the Bible's not written prescribing the activity and the responsibilities of government at every level. As a matter of fact, I would argue that because of that absence of more instruction, there is great latitude for governments on earth to have in the ways in which they govern the affairs of man. There's a lot of latitude. But here's the deal. Whether you live in a Western-style democracy like we do, or whether you live in a very Eastern socialistic or communist rule like our brothers and sisters in China would live under, our expectations of government should be framed by what the Bible gives to us and not simply by what culture gives to us. But let's think about our, our American context. Because nations are sinful, because they are imperfect, Because emperors and kings and presidents are sinful and imperfect, legislators are sinful and imperfect, we should not be surprised when things don't always go the way we want them to in politics. And as Christians, since we know that our ultimate hope is in God and not in politics, we as Christians should not see politics as the primary vehicle through which righteousness on earth is instituted. Christian philosopher Jay Buchevsky writes this, In this sinful world, it's inevitable that many good things that should happen don't, and that many bad things that shouldn't happen do. So this morning, I know there's so many other ways in which I could talk about this, but for the sake of time, I can't. But one of the countercultural ways Christ followers can abstain, proclaim, and display in a world of dysfunctional politics is operating in such a way that shows the world that yes, government is God-ordained and government is good in many respects and politics can be a useful vehicle for all sorts of human good on earth. But it's not ultimate. God is. And when Christ followers campaign with the same ferocity as the world does, When Christians argue in such a way that the world does, calls people names in such a way that the world does, campaigns in such a way that the world does, tweets and retweets in such a way that the world does, and approaches the voting booth with the same level of intensity as the world does, we might show that we think politics is ultimate when it's not. And so I want to challenge you this morning to operate politically in such a countercultural way that shows your neighbor that your ultimate hope is in God and not in politics. Second countercultural practice I want to point our attention to from 1 Peter 2 this morning is generally speaking, we as Christians submit to all governing authorities. Generally speaking, we submit to all governing authorities. Now, we as Christians, yes, we are ultimately responsible to God and not man. Yes, that is a reality. But that truth does not exempt us then from responsibility towards government. Look at verse 13. Peter writes, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Other translations say, but submit yourselves 
to every human institution for the Lord's sake. This is one of three times in the New Testament that Christ's followers are commanded to submit to governing authorities. Paul said this in Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. He and Peter must have talked to each other, right? And then Paul said something very similar in Titus chapter 3, verse 1. He wrote, remind them to be submissive to ruling authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. So we quickly learn from the scriptures here that submission to the government is very much a part of God's design for humanity, including followers of Jesus Christ. Christians can't simply say, well, I'm a citizen of another kingdom, so your laws don't affect me. Well, try that when you're driving 95 miles an hour on 495 this afternoon. It's not going to work. When you follow the laws of earth, it not only honors the governing authorities, the scriptures would argue that it also honors God. Now look around you today. Submitting to governing leaders is not exactly popular in the West, is it? All you have to do is scroll through your social media feeds, listen to talk show hosts, or listen to vloggers and bloggers, or just talk to a family member or friend, and you'll find very quickly that we don't like to be told what to do, do we? It's one of the ways in which the sin, which the sin nature has, has uh, warped us and our mentality as Americans. Tragically, in the last two weeks, our own FBI uncovered an elaborate plot to kidnap and harm the governors of Michigan and Virginia because a right-wing militia group was so mad at the pandemic ordinances that had been instituted by those state governments. As Americans, we don't like to be told what to do, and sometimes that, that uh, obstinate spirit can lead unstable people to some really dangerous responses. But remember the historical context of Peter. He wrote this letter to the church scattered across the superpower Roman Empire, where the great emperor Nero was the leader. Nero, who came to power through family tragedy and corruption, he wielded his power both irresponsibly and tragically many times. And in a horrible show of arrogance and force, he would eventually set fire to the city. Listen to these historians frame that scenario. On the night of July 19th, AD 64, a fire broke out in the southern part of the city. It raged for six days, spreading far and wide. When it was about to die out, it suddenly broke out again in the northern part of the city and burned three more days. Ten of the fourteen wards of the city were destroyed. The frenzy in the city was indescribable. Rumors began to spread that Nero himself had started the fire because of his delirious craving for magnificence and desire to embellish and rebuild the city. To divert attention from himself, Nero blamed the Christians for the fire, who were hated anyway and so were good scapegoats. The effect was horrendous. There had been no persecution like it since the Lord had risen 30 years earlier. 
In the gardens of Nero, the Christians were crucified, sewn into wild beast skins and fed to dogs, drenched in flammable oil and lifted on poles to burn as torches in the night. Now, if Peter and his brothers and sisters in Jesus could submit to Nero, how much more should you and I in the 21st century West be able to and willing to submit to a governor, to a mayor, or to a president? Either those whom we voted for or those whom we did not vote for. And brother and sister in Christ, I know that we live in such sensational times, such political hyperbole on the left and the right, but here is the stark reality that you and I and the West must come to grips with this morning. Regardless of the political divides, no matter how deep the political divides are in the United States of America, none of our leaders compares to this. They just simply don't. So do you want to be countercultural in a world of dysfunctional politics? Then willingly submit to and obey the government. Why? Because the text tells us that it's God's will that you do so. It's God's will that you submit. It's God's will that you obey. Now, why do I say in the notes, generally speaking, we submit to all governing authorities? Well, that's a great question. I'm glad I asked it this morning. I say, generally speaking, because there might be a time when the government commands you to do something that contradicts irrevocably with the commands of God. I think about my brothers and sisters in East Asia this morning. Many who live in villages where it is illegal to assemble together as the church or where it is illegal to proselytize and tell someone else the gospel of Jesus Christ. What do you do in a situation like that? Well, you obey God rather than man. You obey God rather than man, but here's the caveat. When we obey God rather than man in an environment where man is mandating by law something that contradicts the will of God, we must obey God rather than man and then be willing to accept the consequences. And brothers and sisters, not only in the world today, but also throughout human history, Christ followers have experienced that. Now the reality is for those of us in the West, there are very few times that legitimately we have to choose between obeying God or the government. A lot of the controversies that we drum up in America are not really controversies at all. I'm just going to say that on the authority of God's word and also in context of history and the context of the globe. I'm thankful that I live in a country where safety and security is the reality. But that safety and security sometimes, brothers and sisters, allows us as Christians to have expectations that are unrealistic. 
We, it, it causes us to have expectations that aren't reality in history and aren't reality around the globe in so many places. We should not simply expect favored status as a Christian. We should not expect that we're always going to be left alone and that everything's always going to go our way because it's not always going to happen that way. And brothers and sisters, it is not my goal as a pastor to teach you how to arm up against the government. It's my goal to teach you how to be strangers in a strange land, how to be sojourners and exiles in a world that's not ultimately your home so that you may honor those who are in power and honor those whom you live next door to you, but you also know where your ultimate hope lies and where your eternal hope lies so that you may approach this world with the right mindset. Generally speaking, we submit to all human authorities unless we're told to do something that contradicts our faith and in that sense we obey the Lord and not man be willing to accept the consequences and we trust him with our eternal souls. So if you want to be countercultural in a world of dysfunctional politics, submit to the governing authorities with your gaze ultimately on your heavenly authority. Third, countercultural practice I want us to see here is that we live as good citizens. We should live as good citizens. Verses 15 and 16, Peter instructs us with three different admonitions here, right? He says, for this is the will of God, that by one, doing good, right? So we should simply seek to do good, be good citizens on planet Earth. Two, he says, that we should live as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. And three, we should live as servants of God. Now, all of this adds up to living as good citizens and good servants of God in a strange land, in a world that's ultimately not our home. Now, I think we can take this to mean a couple of things. One, I think this lets us know that it's okay to be patriotic. It's okay to love your country. As Americans, it's okay to like hot dogs, apple pie, baseball, and Chevrolet. I mean, it, it's not ungodly to do that. It's okay to wave your American flag. It's okay to wave your Brazilian flag. It's okay to wave uh, your, uh, your Chinese flag wherever you hail from. It's okay to be patriotic. It's not okay to be nationalistic. That's a topic for another discussion. The difference between being patriotic and nationalistic is patriotism, you love your country. Nationalism, you think that your country is supreme and your race is supreme over all others on earth. Patriotism honors God. Nationalism doesn't. It's just a sidebar this morning. I think it's okay to be patriotic. We shouldn't be so otherworldly that we seek no good for this one. But there's a deeper meaning too. Remember the truth from last week's sermon. There's an appropriate level of political involvement that Christians can have. But more importantly, there's a particular type of people Christians are to be. We should simply be known for doing good. We should obey the law. Whether we agree with it or not, we should obey the law. We should pay our taxes, whether we think they're too high or not. We should pay our taxes. Jesus did, so should we. We shouldn't be a people known for causing a stir. 
we should be known for our peacefulness. We should be known for, uh, for, for simply being reasonable in the public square. And remember, it's what I'm calling the third way, right? Not the left, not the right, but the third way. Let's think about some ways to put this into practice in contrast to some of the widely held practices of today. If you're a Christian, we should be known as reasonable people in our political discourse and debates. But unfortunately, too many Christians are some of the most unreasonable, obstinate, and belligerent voices on social media and in the halls of Congress. Thinking about a policy example... And there are so many that we could talk about today, but just for the sake of time, let's let's think about the issue of life for a moment. We as Christians, because of the biblical stance that, that we see in the scriptures and because of God's passion for life, we absolutely should be a people who are passionate about pro life causes. And as that pertains to either the unborn in the womb, or whether it's our grandparents or great-grandparents in their nursing home beds, we should be passionate about standing up for and speaking on issues of life. The Christian is right to defend the cause of the unborn. The Christian is right to defend um, grandma or great-grandma in the nursing home. But brothers and sisters... We've got to be able to apply that doctrine across the board. Because that that cause and that voice is rooted in the doctrine of the image of God. And the image of God is applied far more widely than simply the womb and the deathbed. What about the in-between? Brothers and sisters, we as Christians... We must be just as passionate about the ethical treatment of the refugee, the ethical treatment of the immigrant, the foreigner, victims of racial injustice, and those suffering and dying from a pandemic. They're all rooted in the same doctrine of the image of God. We as Christians cannot applaud the appointment of pro-life judges while at the same rally, cheer on demagoguery, dehumanizing language, and slander because in our view, someone is just telling it like it is. We've got to be consistent across the board. And it's a gift to the world. Because what we're doing in that moment is we are refusing to operate in the world of politics that the world has dictated to us. We are transcending it while operating within it. Because we're willing to stand up for biblical truth, yes. But we're willing to apply it widely to those whom we support as well as to those perhaps we don't support. We've got to be consistent. We've got to be reasonable. We've got to be third way people. Transcending it while operating within it. We operate within it being good citizens by being informed. I'm not asking you to read five different books on social policy over the next two weeks. But you should be basically informed of what the issues are and what, where candidates stand and what, what are their different um, things on the ballot this election season. You listen to debates, perhaps, in an American context, and you go vote. 
And for the most part, we leave it there. We leave it there. Be a good citizen by doing our duty in that way. Sure, there will be some of you whom God raises up to serve in Congress or to serve in the state house or to be on the city council or the school board. There will be a select few of us as Christians who will have greater influence and have the ability to enact change in ways that perhaps the rest of us won't. But for the most part, generally speaking, most of us operate as good citizens by being a consistent voice for the gospel towards those we did not vote for and those whom we did vote for, being educated on what's going on, and we vote. And then we pray and leave the results to God. Beyond that, I don't know. It's what we have from the scriptures. We be good citizens. Now, I'm going to give you one more word here because I think I've said this maybe a couple of sermons. What I've tried to do with these sermons is is to allow these sermons to overlap in some ways and to show you some different parts in Scripture where the Lord speaks on these topics and and our responsibilities as citizens of two worlds and our responsibilities to government. But here's where I come down on this. I, I, I grew up in an environment where pretty much, if you're a Christian, you almost need to vote one way. It, it, it's, just, it's just dictated. And to vote a different way would be being ungodly and irresponsible. As I've grown a little older and a little wiser, that's a little short-sighted in many ways. It's not nuanced enough for a nuanced world in which we live So how do I put this into practice and what would I tell you today? I'm not going to tell you how to vote. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. I'm not even going to cloak it in ways where you can decipher it and say, well, here's what he's really saying. No, here's what I'm going to tell you. I believe in our Christian consciences, the Lord will lead us in different ways. Your conscience might lead you to vote left. Your conscience might lead you to vote right in this election. But the next election, your conscience might lead you to vote the opposite way in which you voted in 2020. But but here's where I think we should always fall as followers of Jesus, as citizens of two worlds. We vote our convictions, we vote our consciences. But as best as it's left up to us and our social media engagement and our conversations with others we should be as independently minded as we possibly can. Because here's the reality. Let's just assume for a moment that you're going to vote leftward in this election. If you vote leftward, when the new president assumes office in January, here's what your duty is going to need to be. You are going to need to call out and affirm when that president does something good and righteous. That's easy. But you also are going to need to call out in your conversations what he does not do good and righteously. And same thing on the other side, if you vote rightward. You need to be able to call out what is good and right from a biblical standpoint, and you got to call out what is not good and right from a biblical standpoint. See, in our current context, it's got to be all in or all out. Because if I voted for him or her, there is nothing bad. Because if I say something against him, I'd be saying something against myself because I 
voted for them. Since when was our identity linked with whom we vote for? But somehow we've done that in the United States. And so that's just a little way in which I choose to engage this way. I promise you, I am passionate about many different things facing us as a country. But I know that if I go on social media and if I engage in my conversations in a way that only props up one side over another, number one, I'm not being intellectually honest. Number two, I'm being unreasonable. And number three, I'm not being missiologically winsome to my neighbor. And I want to do all three of those things in a positive way and not a negative way. All right, so we seek to be good citizens. And there are many different ways in which that can be applied, but for the sake of time, I'm going to leave it there. Lastly, we approach all politics with honor. We approach all politics with honor. Verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Do you see a pattern there? This, this is our disposition in the midst of the political tumult. Tumult. Number one, we honor all people, especially those who disagree with you. Humanly speaking, it's a lot easier to honor those who agree with you because we're on the same team, right? We see everything the same way. So it's not really a radical challenge to say, honor those who agree with you. But brothers and sisters, it is quite radical in the current day to honor those who disagree with you, your neighbor, your friend who is your lab partner at school, your mom, your dad, your son or your daughter. It, it could be anyone in your sphere, but you disagree with them, they disagree with you, and unfortunately that, those disagreements can become very vehement. And when that happens, we dehumanize each other and all across America today, relationships and families are being disrupted and broken because of politics. This should not be so. And if anyone is going to show the world how to do that, Christians have got to show the world how to do this. We've got to honor all people, especially those who disagree with you. And might I suggest that one of the ways in which we might need to do that is we just need to stop engaging on social media, politically. Can I just say that? All right, let's treat this, let's treat this like you would treat your child at home, okay? You, you've bought your son a Nerf gun, right? And now he has his Nerf gun and he's aiming it at all of your trinkets on your curio cabinet. And what do you do? You take it away from him and say, all right, son, if you can't behave responsibly with this, then you can't play with it. Here's the reality. Some of you on social media don't know how to behave responsibly in the political realm on social media. So perhaps it's time for someone to take it away from you. If, if friends are being friendships are being shattered and families are being broken because of our disagreements in the political realm and what we're posting and how we're sharing... Perhaps we just need to drop it and leave it alone so that we can love people more than our politics. Honor all people, especially those who disagree with you. Number two, love fellow believers, especially those who are different from you. Maybe different race, different generation. They speak a different language. They vote differently, regardless of what their differences are. They're different than you are. 
Now, I'm not going to go into this much more because I spent a lot of time talking about this a couple of weeks ago. You can go back to our sermon on living in a world of social unrest from a few weeks ago and you can find more on this. But believers especially, we're to have a special love for each other, Peter says. And lastly, honor all elected officials. We honor all elected officials, especially those you did not vote for. Our culture has taught you to hate and demonize the man or woman on the other side. The one for whom you did not vote. We literally make them a boogeyman over whom we should have life or death fear. But brother and sister, if we castigate them, if we demonize them, if we inordinately fear them, then how can we honor them? I'll give you two ways in which uh, I believe that we can honor those with whom we disagree, those leaders whom we disagree, and those leaders whom we did not vote for. Number one, rather than calling them some nickname or some pejorative that other candidates might throw out there, perhaps we should simply refer to them using their respective titles. It is an honoring thing when we say President Trump, Speaker Pelosi, Senator Warren, Governor Baker. I want you to know that I had serious policy differences with President Obama. I also want you to know that I have very serious policy differences with President Trump in some areas. But I can tell you that if either one of them walked in this room, I would say, good morning, Mr. President. And I would reach out my hand to shake his hand. And it's not because of the honor that they necessarily have as a person or in their politics. It's simply because of their position. And the Lord has called me to honor him as a leader and to respect him as a leader. Now, honor doesn't mean I agree with them on everything. And it doesn't always mean that I see them as honorable in the moment. The Lord knows my own heart with my struggles, both past and present. But honor is not about what they do or who they are. It's ultimately about my heart. It's ultimately about your heart. Don't miss this. God wants to make me more like Jesus through the way I submit to and honor those who are in authority over me. God wants to make you more like Jesus through the way you submit to and honor those who are in authority over you. Each election cycle, we're tempted to say something like, well, he's not my president. I didn't vote for him. But based on the scriptures today, that's simply not an option. For the Christ follower. Mill City Church began in the closing months of 2008. And since that time, I have led our congregation to pray for President Bush, President Obama, and President Trump. And if Joe Biden wins the election next week, in January, we will begin praying for President Biden. 
Along the way, I have led us to pray for Speaker Pelosi, Speaker Boehner, Speaker Ryan, and Speaker Pelosi again. And the reason is because regardless of politics, the Bible calls us to pray for our governing leaders. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says this, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Paul doesn't qualify it. He doesn't say pray for those whom you voted for or those whom you agree with. He says pray for all who are in authority over you. So in a world that sees politics as the ultimate vehicle for human good, this morning, brothers and sisters, I want you to recognize that Jesus and his gospel are your ultimate hope. Then and only then can you approach politics with the right disposition. And in a world that revels in disobedience and insubordination towards government and its authority, let's humbly submit to those who are over us. And by doing so, let's bring honor to God. And let's live as good citizens People who might hold different convictions, voters who might cast their votes for differing candidates, but also prophets who will affirm the right, whether it comes for those whom we voted for or whether it comes from those whom we did not. And let's be prophets who will call out the wrong, whether it likewise comes from those whom we voted for or those whom we did not vote. And in a world that's personified by so much hate, demonization, and political vitriol, let's be personified instead as people of honor. And in by doing those things, we will be abstaining from the world for the sake of the world. We will be proclaiming the excellencies of the gospel of Jesus And we'll be displaying the beauty of a life transformed by the gospel. And that, my brothers and sisters, is just a little foretaste of how we can remain steady in a very politically dysfunctional world. Father, thank you for our time together today. Thank you for uniting us around scriptural truth that is so much greater than the United States Constitution the American presidency. And Father, I pray today that in everything that we've learned from your scriptures, that your word would go into our heart and form us as a people who think like Jesus, speak like Jesus, and look like Jesus to this world. May we abstain from the world, Father, for the sake of it. And to this end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.